All right, we are back. This is the closest show we are going to do to the 10-year anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. So we should say a few words about that. Although, we try not to be driven by what, you know, is in the news in the way of anniversaries and various hooks people rely upon to talk about things. I mean, we start every program with On This Date in History, so we're certainly uh, cognizant of the fact that uh, things have anniversaries, but... What strikes me about all the yammering about 9-11 and what it means and blah, 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 is how some of the key issues are just left by the wayside. To start this discussion, we should refer you to the article by Robert Fisk from, from The Independent, which you can find online. Writing last weekend, Fisk said, For 10 years, we've lied to ourselves to avoid asking the one real question. He starts out saying, by their books, ye shall know them. Adding, I'm talking about the volumes, the libraries, nay, the very halls of literature, which the International Crimes Against Humanity of 11 September 2001 have spawned. Many are spavined with pseudo-patriotism and self-regard. Others rotten with the hopeless mythology of CIA slash Mossad culprits. A few from the Muslim world, alas, even refer to the killers as boys. Almost all avoiding the one thing which any cop looks for in a street crime, the motive. He notes American publishers first went to war in 2001 with massive photo memorial volumes. Their titles spoke for themselves. Above hallowed ground, so others might live. Strong of heart, what we saw, the shadow of swords. Seeing this stuff piled on newsstands across America, who could doubt that the U.S. was going to go to war? And long before the 2003 invasion of Iraq, another pile of tomes arrived to justify the war after the war. Most prominent among them was ex-CIA spook Kenneth Pollock's The Threatening Storm. Didn't we all remember Churchill's The Gathering Storm? Which, needless to say, compared the forthcoming battle against Saddam with the crisis faced by Britain and France in 1938. There were two themes to this work by Pollock. Quote, one of the world's leading experts on Iraq, unquote, the blurb told readers, among whom was Fareed Zakaria, quote, one of the most important books in American foreign policy in years, he driveled. The first of which was a detailed account of Saddam's weapons of mass destruction, none of which, as we know, actually existed. The second theme was the opportunity to sever the, quote, linkage, unquote, between the Iraqi issue and the Arab-Israeli conflict. The Palestinians, deprived of the support of a powerful Iraq, went the narrative, would be further weakened in their struggle against Israeli occupation. Pollock referred to the Palestinians' vicious terrorist campaign, but without any criticism of Israel. He wrote of weekly terrorist attacks followed by Israeli responses, the standard Israeli version of events. Fisk notes later in the piece, I'm drawn to Anthony Summers and Robin Swan's The Eleventh Day, which confronts what the West refused to face in the years that followed 9-11. Said Summers and Swan, all the evidence indicates that Palestine was the factor that united the conspirators at every level. One of the organizers of the attack believed it would make Americans concentrate on the atrocities that America is committing by supporting Israel. Palestine, state the authors, was certainly the principal political grievance driving the young Arabs who had lived in Hamburg. Say the authors, the motivation for the attacks was ducked even by the official 9-11 report. The two most senior members of the commission, Thomas Keene and Lee Hamilton, later explained, this was sensitive ground. Commissioners who argued that al-Qaeda was motivated by a religious ideology 
and not by opposition to American policies, rejected mentioning the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In their view, listing U.S. support for Israel as a root cause of the al-Qaeda opposition to the United States indicated that the United States should reassess that policy. Notes Fisk. And there you have it. So what happened, he asks, the commissioners, Summers and Swan State, they, quote, settled on vague language that circumvented the issue of motive, unquote. Fisk notes that there's a hint in the official report, but only in a footnote, which, of course, few read. In other words, we still haven't told the truth about the crime which we're supposed to believe changed the world forever. Fisk editorializes that, mind you, after watching Obama on his knees before Netanyahu last May, I was not really surprised. When the Israeli prime minister gets even the U.S. Congress to grovel to him, the American people are not going to be told the answer to the most important and sensitive, in quotes, sensitive question on 9-11. Why? Personally, I think Fisk asks a very good question. I did a commentary for Capital Public Radio the week after 9-11, and I asked that question, and I pointed out at the time that according to al-Qaeda, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was why they did it. My friend Steve heard that commentary and called up to take issue with it. He asked me how I could claim that the Arab-Israeli conflict was at the root of what happened on 9-11. And I replied, well, that's because as far as we know, that's what the perpetrators are saying their motive was. Fisk has asked a good question. If you don't have time to read... The Eleventh Day by Anthony Summers and Robin Swan, which frankly I have not yet had found the time to do myself. I would refer you to their summary of it in the Vanity Fair article titled The Kingdom and the Towers, which we talked about at some length on this show a few weeks back. The point of that Vanity Fair article was that a 42-page summary of the relations between America and the Saudis was omitted from the 9-11 report as being politically explosive by the Bush administration. The Obama administration has continued to keep it away from the public. We also refer you to an excellent video about the origins of uh, the Islamic jihadists, which was presented by Russ Baker on his whowhatwhere.com website. It raises the issue of what what the real nature of al-Qaeda was and how important Osama bin Laden was relative to Ayman al-Zawahiri. Long called the number two man in al-Qaeda, who's now been elevated to the number one position in the public's mind in the wake of the death of Osama bin Laden. But of course, the story is always a little more complicated than you'd know from brief summaries. We may need to discuss this further on the program, perhaps next month, and I think that uh, we, we should bring back Professor Peter Dale Scott. We talked at length about his book, The Road to 9-11, subtitled Wealth, Empire, and the Future of America, a couple years ago. We did not focus on some of the background materials that led up to 9-11 as much as we might have. Uh, Peter Dale Scott is a meticulous scholar, and uh, even picking up one small area of this discussion means you're going, to, uh, you're going to get very detailed. I recommend his book to you very highly, and refer you back to our arch- archives for that discussion. Someone we have not yet brought on the program is James Bamforth, probably the leading writer on the National Security Agency. His book, The Shadow Factory, the ultra-secret NSA from 9-11 to the eavesdropping on America, has a chapter about the two 9-11 hijackers and their uh, activities in America before 9-11 that is fascinating. 
As you may or may not be aware, a couple of the hijackers, these men were later on the plane which struck the Pentagon, were openly living in San Diego in the year before the 9-11 attacks. Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Midhar were in the white pages of the San Diego phone book, even though the CIA FBI task force, which was watching al-Qaeda operations, had put a tail on these guys when they flew from the Middle East to Malaysia in January of 2000. And no, we're not going to delve very deeply into this whole idea that certain people in the U.S. government may have let the attacks happen. A lot of people think that. I sure as hell don't know about that, but A lot of interesting questions are raised by even a rather cursory examination of the facts. We do need to get James Banforth on this program. Reading The Shadow Factory, I was um, surprised to learn some of the details I maybe had known and forgotten or maybe didn't know at all. But did you know, dear listener, that when they were driving across the country, one of the 9-11 hijackers got uh, pulled over by the police for speeding. The Oklahoma Highway Patrol pulled him over, ran a check on him, and (laughs) discovered that Apparently, nobody was looking for him. Not the NSA, not the CIA, not the FBI, not the State Department. The trooper wrote, that wrote him a ticket said, We didn't see anything to go any further with the contact. I wrote him a ticket for speeding and for his seatbelt. By the way, Hamzi promptly mailed in his ticket with a money order covering the $138 in fines, and the matter was forgotten. Did you know that the CIA had a special operations division called Alex Station dedicated to Al-Qaeda? That's hardly surprising in the wake of the embassy bombings by al-Qaeda that had previously taken place in the attack on the USS Cole. So as you might imagine, at the CIA, they, they had a counterterrorism center dedica- dedicated to tracking al-Qaeda and other terrorists. Within it, there was a subdivision known as Alex Station, which was set up to find, track, capture, or kill Osama bin Laden. It would refer you, dear listener, to James Bamford's book, The Shadow Factory, and other sources, including Wikipedia, to verify that the following actually happened. About the time that Alex Station finds out that a couple of Osama bin Laden's associates, the men we're talking about, Khalid al-Midhar and Nawaf al-Hamzi, were traveling to Asia to meet up and plan something which couldn't be good for America. When one of the three FBI employees at Alex Station, Doug Miller, decides he better alert the Bureau to the fact that these curious characters are on the move. And not only that, we had Passport Control in Malaysia look at his passport, and it turns out he's got a valid multi-entry visa for the United States. They thought, well, we better, we better spread this word around. Quote Bamford. But inexplicably, the message, known as a Central Intelligence Report, CIR, was spiked by his CIA boss, Tom Wilshire, the deputy chief of Alex Station. Without Wilshire's approval, Miller could not pass on the information. When Miller told his FBI colleague Mark Rossini what had happened, Rossini was perplexed and outraged. Again, quote Bamford, he took the matter to Wilshire's deputy, saying, so the next day I went to her and said, what's up with Doug's cable? You've got to tell the Bureau about this. She puts her hands on her hip and says, look, the next attack is going to happen in Southeast Asia. It's not the FBI's jurisdiction. When we want the FBI to know about it, we'll let them know. But the next bin Laden attack is going to happen in Southeast Asia. Well, actually, about the time that conversation was taking place, Midhar and Hamzi were touching down their plane at L.A. International Airport. Yes, these are the guys we know about who were later in the San Diego White Pages. You have to ask the question, is it possible someone was maybe just looking the other way while some of this was going on? 
Admittedly, the NSA, CIA, FBI, State Department, they're all at cross-purposes. They all have their own bureaucracies. They're not talking to each other as well as they should, but you still have to ask the question, is there something else going on here? And once you've asked yourself that question, go to Wikipedia and look up Ali Mohammed. That's if you don't have time to read Peter Dale Scott's book. Look it up on Wikipedia. We were told in the wake of 9-11 that we just didn't have good enough intelligence, but Ali Mohammed is a man the CIA employed to to spy on Isla Egyptian Islamic Jihad while he was apparently spying on the CIA for Egyptian Islamic Jihad. They sent him into the Al-Kifa Mosque in Brooklyn, where he apparently trained the assassin of Meir Kahane, Al-Sayed Nosan. When they looked up some of his associates, they tracked them down and found that in their apartment they had all kinds of information about New York landmarks like the World Trade Center. The guy convicted of that, Ramzi Yosef, was known to have been working with Ali Mohammed. And, oh, by the way, when you look up on Wikipedia, you'll find out that he apparently had something to do with the training of a couple guys named Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri. It'll tell you on Wikipedia, and apparently I assume it's true, that he wrote the Al-Qaeda manual on how to do uh, nefarious things, which, by the way, he copied at Kinko's from materials that he took out of the JFK Special Warfare School at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where he was also working. Apparently he did some surveillance of the embassies in Africa that were later blown up by Al-Qaeda and apparently was convicted as part of those plots but was made to disappear by U.S. intelligence and as far as I know has never been sentenced. How does all this happen? We'll try and spend some time on this in future programs, but uh, it's a complicated matter, hard to sort out, but I do think, dear listener, that some of you should go out and try. Especially in the wake of the fact that as we start at the top of this segment, Apparently, some of the motive related to 9-11 was related to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And sometime in the next few weeks, there's going to be a vote at the UN about whether the Palestinians should be given the status of as an observer state at the UN, which is apparently an upgrade from a non-voting observer entity. The Obama administration is doing everything possible to block this, which is something to think about on the 10th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And on that note, we desperately need to take a break, so let's do so. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Let's talk about one of our favorite characters, Richard Feynman. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.